us at one time or another, at one season or another, uh, grapple with questions like you see uh, on the board behind me. Uh, I've grappled with those, and I've answered them in a number of different ways. And during this season, I've gotten well acquainted with a, a very new series of answers to these questions. Uh, we don't have time this morning to deal with all five, and uh, so I'm hoping that means Pastor Stan will have me come back because you're just going to be on the edge of your seat, you know, until I come back and begin to answer more. But I will answer a couple of them for you this morning. The first is, what is the gospel? The gospel is not primarily information. It's not a book. It's not a place or a status. The gospel is actually a person. And that person, as we know, is Jesus. That might sound like just a small little nuance. But when we let that get into our spirit and realize that we have been called not to pass on a story that's written in a book only. We've not been called to pass on a system or even recruit to a church building. We have been called to introduce people to a person. And that person is not who the gospel is about. That person is the gospel. And that he is our life, he is our message, and he is our love. What is the gospel is actually who is the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus. Another one of the questions that I've grappled with, as you have, especially when you get to certain pivotal points of your life, is, what is my purpose? The amazing thing to me, as I look at these questions, is the answers are the same for all of us when it comes to purpose. Now, God has got specific assignments in mind for all of us, but when it comes to our basic life purpose, it is a shared purpose that we have, and that purpose is love. The one true purpose of our lives is love. Now, last time I was here, I made the proclamation that the Ten Commandments were a picture of God's love. Ron Mill, former pastor of uh, the great Beaverton Foursquare Church and prolific author, said it this way, the Ten Commandments are one of the most powerful examples of God's love in all of Scripture. Some people, of course, imagine it to be the exact opposite. They don't hear love in these statements. They hear the clink of chains and the rattle of padlocks. And some people look at Scripture in the same way. The reality is that the entirety of Scripture points us one place, and that's to, to Jesus. And the entirety of Scripture could be described as, and should be described as, the greatest love story ever written. Now, it's a season for love stories, isn't it? So romantic with the lights and the candles and the carols and the shopping and the, some of you are saying, just stop. And the, and the carriage rides, right? And as soon as the crack of the whip happens, it starts to snow. At least that's the way it happens on Hallmark, right? My DVR currently today has some Hallmark movies that have been lovingly recorded for our watching pleasure. And so we will be sharing these with popcorn and uh, cocoa, no doubt, soon. The first, Catch a Christmas Star. A famous pop star rekindles a romance with her high school beau, who's now a widowed single dad. 
But problems arise in the form of pressures accompanying her high-profile lifestyle. Catch a Christmas star or angels and ornaments. A woman gets romantic help from a mysterious new co-worker who is on orders from a higher power to guide her towards true love by Christmas Eve. And his mission includes getting her to see her longtime childhood pal in a new light. And for the bell to ring on the Christmas tree and the angel to receive. No, okay. Snow Bride, if that doesn't ring your bell. A reporter meets the son of a celebrated political family and agrees to pose as his girlfriend at Christmas time. But problems arise when she must decide whether to betray the family's trust to save her job or take a chance on real love. Or the nine lives of Christmas. A confirmed bachelor adopts a stray cat, which leads a pretty veterinary student to enter his life and alter his feelings about remaining single. All of those could be yours today on DVR. <laughs> here's, my, here's my main point this morning. The best love stories, the best love stories you're not going to see on Hallmark this season. The best love stories are nonfiction love stories. It follows then that Scripture is the greatest nonfiction love story ever told, and it's true. And while God is done writing Scripture, He is not done writing fabulous love stories. And His desire is to write some amazing stories through the lives of you and me. This morning, on the way to a better understanding of what love is and what love does, I want to share with you some modern-day love stories that you are not going to see on Hallmark. So in your notes, love is, love is the command of the kingdom. The command of the kingdom. Matthew 22, who uh, you've probably heard many times before. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And we might say, oh good, good. No sacrificial system with its intricate and at times disgusting requirements. No painting blood on the, on the uh, door frames of our house. No stoning each other for, stint, for sin, thank the Lord. No uh, giving of tithes and alms or honoring your father and mother. We just have to love. Isn't that great news? Is it? Really? Because the kind of love that God is calling us to is not a sappy love or a trite love. He's calling us to give all. The reality is that all Jesus wants from us is all. Everything, all of our resources, our affections, attention, the best of our mind and our heart and our body belong to Him. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor 
in the same way that you love yourself. Okay, who's my neighbor? 7.2 billion people minus me. That's my neighbor. Okay, I've got it up here. But do I have it here and do I have it here? Because unlike, unlike our tax returns, we are not able to claim exemptions when it comes to love. Jesus said it this way, love your enemies in the same way that you love yourself. Wow, ISIS? Really? Really? What about crazy Uncle Ralph? Really? What about my aunt that looks down her nose at me? What about my unreasonable boss? Or my unfaithful spouse? Or my cantankerous neighbor? Or you fill in the blank. You don't know what they've done to me. I'll love, not them. We don't get to claim exemptions. Isn't that good news? <laughs> we have to love everybody. And that, that is our purpose. And that is the hardest life imaginable. A friend of mine said it this way. We must continually ask ourselves, what does love require? in this situation. Because after all, Jesus said by his own words that love is not a suggestion. Love's not a good idea. Love is a command. It's the command of the kingdom. So what does love require in the situations of my life that I would write differently? Sometimes it demands that we act. Sometimes it demands that we refrain from acting. Sometimes it demands we move. Sometimes that we wait. Sometimes it demands that we speak up. And sometimes it demands that we shut up. And that can be the hardest form of love. Just love. That's all. That's all. The command of the kingdom. It's also the context. It's the context of all of our kingdom communications. 1 Corinthians 13 that you and I know and love so well. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my bodies to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. I didn't take Greek in Bible college, so I'm told that the translation is, unless love is established in the context of your life and your ministry, shut up. Your kids are going, can you say that in church? It's in the Greek. All right. In simple terms, in simple terms, the gospel message of Jesus does not translate unless it is done in the context of love. We're not called to win arguments and to win wars. We're called to love, period. And unless we establish the context of love, the kind of love that we're describing here from the words of Jesus, the words that we speak will be the same 
as going to that drum set and bashing on the cymbals until those around us are going like this. And the problem is oftentimes they are doing just that because we have not established the context of love. It's the only way that the gospel of Jesus is understood. It was designed that way. It has to be the context of all of our kingdom communications. 1 John 3 says it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. And as we do, we establish the context for the gospel of Jesus to be translated into the lives of those around us. Love is also the currency of the kingdom. It's the currency of the kingdom. We live in a capitalistic society that is driven by currency. The problem is the currency that Jesus has has called upon us to exchange is the currency of love. He said this in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We can't claim exemption on that verse either. The currency of the kingdom is love. And there's some beautiful examples. I want to share with you, I love watching the CBS Morning News. I, I DVR that as well. And um, a story from a couple of weeks ago, I think you are going to love. The story of Jason Brown. Go ahead and run that. At one point, number 60, Jason Brown was one of the best centers in the NFL. At one point, he had a five-year, $37 million contract with the St. Louis Rams. And at one point, he decided it was all meaningless and just walked away from football. My agent, you know, he told me, he said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And I looked right back at him. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. So what could possibly trump the NFL? You wouldn't believe. Jason Brown quit football to be a plain old farmer. Even though he never farmed a day in his life, how did you learn even to do what you're doing? Get on the internet. You watch YouTube videos. So you learned how to farm from YouTube? Yeah. You can still plant your crop. Thanks to YouTube and some good advice from other farmers here in Lewisburg, North Carolina, last week, Jason finished harvesting his first five-acre plot of sweet potatoes. When you see them pop up out of the ground, man, it's the most beautiful thing that you could ever see. He says he has never felt more successful. Not in man's standards, but in God's eyes. But God cares about the NFL. I see people praying to him on the field all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people praying out there. But um, when, when I think about a life of, of greatness, I think about a life of, of service. Which leads us here. Which leads us here. Yes. See, his plan for this farm which he calls First Fruits Farm, is to donate the first fruits of every harvest to food pantries. Today, it's all five acres, 100,000 pounds of sweet potatoes. 
It's unusual for a grower to grow a crop just to give away. Rebecca Page organizes food collection for the needy. And that's what Jason has done. And he's planning to do more next year. Jason has a thousand acres here, which could go a long way toward eliminating hunger in this neck of North Carolina. Love is the most wonderful currency that you can give anyone. You sure you played in the NFL? <laughs> yes. Because I feel like cuddling you right now. Don't do that. <laughs> Jason may have left the NFL, but apparently holding is still a penalty. <laughs> what, what a great story. I learned how to farm on YouTube, right? <laughs> Where they all learned. Oh, I love that. And I love that, that statement that he makes. Love is the greatest currency that you can give anybody. I'm not so sure about the sweet potatoes, but anyway, um, how wonderful that he is, that he is dedicating the first fruits. I've heard that somewhere before, the first fruits to the needy, amazing, the currency of the kingdom. So we understand what love is. Now let's look at what love does, what love does. First, back to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And there's a story in the making for each one of those words and each one of those phrases that we can live out in our lives. And uh, I... I give you patience. I think you should develop the patience. I'll work on the others. But there are many other great descriptions of loving behavior. And let, allow me to suggest a couple of more terms this morning with the corresponding story. First is love does life spontaneously. When it comes to the phrase love does, if you have not yet read the book Love Does by Bob Goff, you are missing an absolute treasure of a book. I was turned on to that by uh, my, my son Calvin, um, heard him at one of the local churches here, and uh, I had a school worker that uh, said, you've got to read this book, and I read that book, and it's just one of those books where you find yourself just going, does somebody really live that way? Really? He uh, has an outrageous story about how he became a lawyer, and... Um, so after he got his license to practice, he had to, he had to uh, have an office, you know, so he could keep office hours. And so he, uh, I don't want to ruin too much of the book, but so he said, well, if I have to have an office, my office is going to be at a picnic table on Tom Sawyer Island at Disneyland. So when people want to come see their lawyer, they need to pay you know, the $85 entry fee, or maybe it's $850, I don't know, to come into Disneyland and take the raft across to Tom Sawyer Island and find his table. And um, people have met with him, and other people from around the world have come, like we did when we were at Disneyland a couple years ago, and signed the bottom of the table with a Sharpie. And I mean, there's world leaders and there's people from all around the world that have signed this table. And he calls it his table. I don't think it's probably his table. Disney probably is aware that people are coming in with Sharpies and we didn't get, you know, busted for vandalism. But you just think, you read about this and you go, who lives this way? In fact, he put at the end of this book, 
he, he gives his cell number and said, if you'd like to call and just talk about the book, just give me a call. And I read that and I go, yeah, right. And it took me like two weeks to get up the nerve and I called him and he answered the phone. Hi, this is Bob. I'm like, Bob Goff? <laughs> he lives outrageously. Well, there's another author that I love that's a local author, Donald Miller, who's the uh, author of the famed Blue Like Jazz, who's a neighbor of ours. Not, not physically, I'm talking in the Portland area. And Don Miller talks about when he first met Bob. And I want to share a little piece of the story of when Don met Bob. Don and some friends were kayaking up the Jervis Inlet in British Columbia. The trick the trip would take about a week, and we'd be paddling about 50 miles to the back of the inlet where there was a Young Life camp before we'd turn around and paddle back. Now, in the Jervis Inlet, the stone faces of the mountains come into the water like walls. You paddle down the mile-wide inlet with cliffs on either side, and the trees are lined up atop the cliffs like guardians of all this beauty. So they kayak for a couple of nights through the, through the rain and through the, the cold, and they make their camp near Chatterbox Falls. The falls clapped against the inlet in so much thunder, like a thousand people clapping a standing ovation. Now, there's no way I could have anticipated the positive turn that would take place next. We were 50 miles from the nearest road, after all, but the next morning, I met the greatest real-life storyteller I will perhaps ever know. We broke camp, packed our boats, and began paddling for home. But before crossing the inlet, our guide wanted to show us a lodge a man had built the previous year, a massive house set on a ledge just off the water. I thought it was odd that anybody would build a house back there, since you could only get to the place by seaplane or boat. But indeed, a home had been built. And it was an enormous and beautiful place, snug against the gray cliff of the mountain with decks cascading down to the waterfront where there was a dock and some boats and a plane. The man was a lawyer, one of my friends said, who lived in San Diego but had a law firm in Seattle. He was also the American consul to Uganda. He gives most of his money away, my friend said. He'd actually bought 5,000 acres in the area to save the trees and preserve the beauty. We were only going to paddle by and take a look at the house, but as we got closer, we saw a man coming down the steps to the dock. That must be him, my friend said. That must be Bob. By this time, Bob had a great Gatsby impression in my mind. He walked down the stairs to the dock and smiled and pulled his, his uh, gray hair back and waved at us in large, graceful swings. He waved at us then with both hands to call us closer to the dock, and he was shouting something. What's he saying? One of my friends asked, pulling his paddle from the water. Are you hungry? We heard Bob shout. He's asking us if we're hungry, my friend said. Are we? I think we are, I said. So we paddled towards Bob's dock. As we got closer, Bob's sons came down the stairs and helped bring the boats to the dock. They held them and tied them to the dock as we climbed on. Bob got down on his knees and helped us out as though we were expected guests, as though he'd been waiting a week for our, uh, our arrival. We saw you coming and sweet Maria put fruit out on the table, he said. There's plenty. And she made lemonade too. Let's go up to the house and get you guys fed. At first I thought sweet Maria was the maid or something, but it turns out sweet Maria is Bob's wife. When he talked about her, he nearly always called her sweet. Maria. And she was sweet too. 
She'd put 50 pounds of fruit on a large table on the main deck and pitchers of water and lemonade, crackers and cheese and fresh bread. The family was going back and forth to the kitchen bringing out more food. I felt as though we'd found the Swiss family Robinson. But we were in terrible condition to visit anybody. We were wet and hadn't showered in days because it had been raining on the inlet. We'd not been able to dry off, so our clothes smelled as if sea animals had died in our socks and our pockets. But Maria kept putting out fruit and welcoming us and gave us fresh towels to dry off. Then the sun came out and we sat on the deck and talked with the Goths. For the better part of an hour, they asked where we'd come from and what we did back home. Bob asked about our journey. He said he couldn't believe we'd paddled that far and that it took plenty long in a boat with a motor. I asked Bob how he'd come to build a lodge 60 miles from the nearest road. And he told us he'd grown up going to Young Life Camp nearby and always loved the place. He said the real reason for the lodge was to host leaders from foreign countries and talk about peace, to talk about how leaders can bring peace to their countries. And that's a story in and of itself. And they come. Got to fast forward. So Maria and the kids came down with desserts and pastries they'd been baking while we were talking. And he showed us around the property. And he was uncomfortable with the idea as we oohed and awed that it was anything special. <clears throat> we spent nearly eight hours with the Goff family. They didn't want us to go, and we didn't want to go either. But around midnight, we realized we still had to paddle several hours in order to make it to our campsite on the other side of the inlet. So we gathered our things on the dock. I thanked Bob for the food and the towels and especially the stories. I asked him if I could get in touch with him. He said he'd love to and gave me his email address. I put my gear in the kayak and Bob kneeled down on the wet dock and held it close as I lowered myself into the boat. I told him thanks and that I was sorry he got his knees wet. He looked at me and smiled and said it was nothing. Just wait. I wasn't sure what he meant by that, but as we pushed off the dock and the other guys got into their boats and pressed off, we backpaddled in the dark of the inlet, waving at the goffs as they waved back at us. And then to our amazement, we saw all of them fully dressed with shoes and jackets take three steps together and jump into the freezing cold water, coming up and waving wildly and shouting their goodbyes. And that's a goodbye they will never forget, right? And you think, who does that? And that is a guy that lives life with incredible spontaneity. And that is a family that is quite literally all in when it comes to love. It's hard for me as the organized, line up your ducks in a row type, methodical planner to recommend to us that we live our lives spontaneously. But the greatest memories and, the te and greatest testimonies await a lovingly spontaneous life. And when I grow up, I'd like to be just like Bob. We also are called to live life sensitively. To live life sensitively. And I always hesitate to read this story because I'm the, I'm the dad of two boys myself and this story gets me every time. It's called The Dime. Perhaps you've heard it. It's my favorite Christmas story. Bobby was getting cold sitting out in his backyard in the snow. Bobby didn't wear boots. He didn't like them anyway. And he didn't own any. The thin sneakers he wore had a few, few holes in them and they did a poor job of keeping out the cold. Bobby had been in his backyard for about an hour already, and try as he might, he could not come up with an idea for his mother's Christmas gift. He shook his head as he thought, this is useless. 
even if I do come up with an idea, I don't have any money to spend. Ever since his father had passed away three years ago, the family of five had struggled. It wasn't because his mother didn't care or try. There just never seemed to be enough. She worked nights at the hospital, but the small wage that she was earning could only be stretched so far. What the family lacked in money and material things, they more than made up for in love and family unity. Bobby had two older and one younger sister who ran the household in their mother's absence. All three of his sisters had already made beautiful gifts for their mother. Somehow, it just wasn't fair. Here it was Christmas Eve already, and he had nothing. Wiping a tear from his eye, Bobby kicked the snow and started to walk down to the street where the shops and stores were. Wasn't easy being six without a father, especially when he needed a man to talk to. Bobby walked from shop to shop, looking in each decorated window. Everything seemed so beautiful and so out of reach. It was starting to get dark, and Bobby reluctantly turned to walk home when suddenly his eyes caught the glimmer of the setting sun's rays reflecting off of something along the curb. He reached down and discovered a shiny dime. Never before has anyone felt so wealthy as Bobby felt at that moment. As he held his newfound treasure, a warmth spread throughout his entire body, and he walked into the first store that he saw. His excitement quickly turned cold when the salesperson told him that he couldn't buy anything with only a dime. He saw a flower shop next door and went inside to wait in line. When the shop owner asked if he could help him, Bobby presented the dime and asked if he could buy one flower for his mother's Christmas gift. The shop owner looked at Bobby in his 10-cent offering. Then he put his hand on Bobby's shoulder and said to him, You just wait here and I'll see what I can do for you. As Bobby waited, he looked at the beautiful flowers, and even though he was a boy, he could see why mothers and girls liked flowers. The sound of the door closing as the last customer left jolted Bobby back to reality. All alone in the shop, Bobby began to feel alone and afraid. Suddenly, the shop owner came out and moved to the counter. There before Bobby's eyes lay 12 long stem red roses with leaves of green and tiny white flowers all tied together with a big silver bow. Bobby's heart sank as the owner picked them up and placed them gently into a long white box. That will be 10 cents, young man, shop owner said, reaching out his hand for the dime. Slowly, Bobby moved his hand to give the man his dime. Could this be true? No one else would give him a thing for his dime. Sensing the boy's reluctance, the shop owner added, I just happen to have some roses on sale for 10 cents a dozen. Would you like them? This time, Bobby did not hesitate, and when the man placed the long box into his hands, he knew it was true. Walking out the door that the owner was holding for Bobby, he heard the shopkeeper say, Merry Christmas, son. As he returned inside, the shopkeeper's wife walked out. Who are you talking to back there, and where are the roses you were fixing? Staring out the window and blinking the tears from his own eyes, he replied, A strange thing happened to me this morning. While I was sitting up, while I was setting up things to open the shop, I thought I heard a voice telling me to set aside a dozen of my best roses for a special gift. I wasn't sure at the time whether I'd lost my mind or what, but I set them aside anyway. Then just a few minutes ago, a little boy came into the shop and wanted to buy a flower for his mother with one small dime. And when I looked at him, I saw myself many years ago, because I too was a poor boy with nothing to buy my mother for a Christmas gift. And a man that I didn't know stopped me on the street and told me he wanted to give me $10. When I saw that little boy tonight, I knew who, who that voice was, and I put together a dozen 
of my very best roses. And I ask you, how often do we live our lives like that shopkeeper where we're just sensitive enough to hear that whispering of the Holy Spirit? And do we see little moments like that as significant? Because we should. They're life-changing moments that God can use you and I in if we will live our lives sensitively. Next, living life generously. I've gotten acquainted with a wonderful man and his family. His name is Rick Jackson. Rick is a part of the leadership team at Willamette Christian Center in Eugene where we attend. And Rick is also my insurance agent, and I love him dearly. And he's an extraordinary man. You see, years ago, they had four children of their own, and they felt led to adopt two twin children, infants. These infants were half black and half white. Awful significant that Rick and his wife were considering that because their family had roots in the deep south. And he said, when I was in high school, I don't remember one black person in my high school. And I found myself wondering, could I really love an adopted kid the way I do my own flesh and blood? And he goes, and I saw those babies and I thought, they are my children extraordinary that they do just that but then from the same mother three months later they felt led to adopt a three and a five-year-old from that same mom and now they go from four children to eight but they didn't stop there because they adopted another child from the same mother and then adopted the mother the teenage mother to come into their home and uh, that lasted about a year but how remarkable was that So now five adopted kids that they later added three more to. And if you're doing your math, that's 12. And I look at Rick and I go, you must be Jesus. And I look at him and I go, you must be Jesus. It's amazing. His youngest is now 15. His oldest is 25. And he's got 26 grandkids from the first five kids. He said on Halloween he drove over to drop something off at one of his kids' house. And he ended up with 26 grandkids in the back of his truck that he drove around the neighborhoods for trick-or-treating. What a great picture. One of his oldest children, his, his, uh, not one of his adopted kids, but one of the original four, uh, was diagnosed a couple years ago with uh, an, a very aggressive form of liver cancer. The only way that he would survive was to uh, be a candidate for a liver transplant that they had only done less than 200 successfully ever at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. He became a candidate for that, and they found a donor. And the donor came from his family, Garrett. Garrett, though, was not a blood relative. Garrett was his best buddy growing up. Garrett was now his brother-in-law. And Garrett said, I'll be the donor. See, the liver's an amazing organ. You can take two-thirds of the liver out and donate it, and the third that you have left will regenerate itself back to full size. And that's what Garrett said he would do. And so they went back to Mayo Clinic together to do that, and it was a touch-and-go amazing deal. But Garrett's mother was so upset about it and so scared about it that she boots Garrett out of the house. And so what do the Jacksons do? They get a house for Garrett and remodel it in the midst of the madness and chaos. And I ask you people, who does that? And it's a nonfiction story that is still unfolding. When I grow up, I want to be just like Rick and Evie Jackson. 
Amazing people. And finally, love does life spontaneously. It does it sensitively and generously. It also does it second. Second. And we probably need to look in the mirror from time to time and just repeat to ourselves, I am second. Because we're not wired and trained to live second in our culture. But there are people, even in our midst, that are living, that, that are living this way. Jesus says, love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Jesus said, the greatest among you is the one who serves. Jason Brown said, a lifestyle of greatness is a life of service. Our culture trains us to keep score. Not only on the field, but in marriage, at work, at home. I do everything around here. It's someone else's turn. They don't appreciate me. A simple way of living is just to say, give first, give most. Serve first, serve most. And blow up the scoreboard. Live generously and live second. John 4.35 says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe for harvest. And I mentioned there's people among us that are living this way. There's more than one, but dear friends of ours, a number of years ago, have chosen to live second. You perhaps have heard of Embrace Compassion. Perhaps many of you, like we are, are supporting this unbelievable work of love and compassion. This miraculous relational connection that happened in downtown Portland at, at Shane Bridges' place of work connected them and opened the doors wide to a village in the bush of Ethiopia where they have never, ever seen a white person until Jennifer walked in. And not only did they walk in, but they walked in with arms loaded year after year now, providing for the basic needs of the village. Today, as a result of this work, there are five clean water wells, the first ever in that area, that's providing fresh water and clean water to over 5,000 people a day. And they're getting ready to drill number six. It's a phenomenal story of compassion. Jennifer's getting ready to leave in two days on Tuesday night for three months in a village with no electricity, no running water. She'll be sleeping on a dirt floor and cooking over an open fireplace and loving people. It's an amazing story. She writes in their recent newsletter, Groundbreaking inspiration has been whispered into my heart and birthed out of a struggle. We need more, we need to be more about love. The question has been, how can we help the villagers fully grasp the all-encompassing love of God while we demonstrate love in critical, tangible ways through food, water, education, and health? I have felt we need to more intentionally teach on love. I am currently in the process of creating the first, as far as I know, coloring book series sharing Bible stories in the Oromaphia language, spoken by 25 million people. And they have never had Bible stories translated in their language until now. Someone in our very midst is making a difference in our world. 
And she says on here, wow, just wow. And if I could just add a couple things to that phrase, I would say simply, wow, just wow. 5,000 people are getting fresh water every day that would not otherwise have. And there's a potential for 25 million people to hear the greatest love story ever told, perhaps for the first time. And she's picking up the first printing tomorrow. And she leaves Tuesday night for three months. Her family will be joining and spending all of their holiday vacation in Ethiopia for Christmas. That's a fabulous love story. And the reality is this. God is calling us, not just the bridges, not just the goffs, to write these fabulous love stories. Real love stories. You can't make some of this stuff up. They're trying on Hallmark, but the real stuff is just far better. And you might say to yourself, but I'm not Bob Goff. I am not Rick Jackson, and I am not Jennifer, Shane, Caitlin, and Harrison Bridges. And I say to you, neither am I. But we can be more like them. Not naturally, but supernaturally, as the Holy Spirit pours love into our hearts and through our hearts. God wants to write on the parchment of our lives fabulous, true love stories that will impact our world. Will we live our lives in such a way that we can hear the whispering of the Holy Spirit saying just something as simple as take 12 of your best roses and set them aside. Take five of your acres and have the first fruits go to the needy. Live your life in such a spontaneous and outrageous way that people will go, what in the world is different about you? And we can point them to the gospel. Not a book, not a building, but a life, a person, Jesus Christ, that can truly change every life.